Welcome to the Elevate podcast. This series focuses on elevating and inspiring women and girls into or to remain in the tech sector from the classroom to the boardroom. I'm Kelly Kwarteng, founder and CEO of Halzak and host of the show. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Elevate Women in Tech. We have a really special guest with us today, Lucy Wilson, Engineering Manager at ASOS who will be sharing her lived experience as a neurodivergent woman working in tech. Lucy has worked in tech for six years, mostly in the retail sector. She comes from a non-technical background, having worked in a warehouse, then finance, dealing with customer and excise tax, project management, before a colleague suggested she applies for a role in tech as service delivery analyst. She did not climb the ladder as such, but traveled across a spider's web to get her role as engineering manager, where she supports engineers' well-being, goals, and career development. Lucy has recently qualified as a professional coach, as she wants to use her coaching skills to help others, especially women in tech and people who are are neurodivergent. Today, we will be discussing what it's like as a neurodivergent woman in tech, working in tech, following her diagnosis of dyslexia officially in the university and is currently waiting on a long waiting list for her diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Lucy, it's great to have you here today. Really excited to to delve into this um, really important topic. No worries. So to kick things off, and I pretty much do this with most of my guests, um, it would be great if you could share what sparked your interest to make that switch into tech um, and also what led you to the role that you're in today? Yeah, so tech kind of found me, if I'm honest. Um, Like you said, uh, a colleague uh, asked me to apply for a role or suggested I apply for a role. Um, I've always had a bit of an interest in tech. So most of my roles have had some kind of tech element, um, kind of doing process flows or testing systems um, and implementing them as part of like the finance roles that I've had Um, so yeah I just kind of fell into it if I'm honest Um, but I do like the fact that there's a a diverse amount of people in tech and a massive amount of flexibility Um, and my current role really enables me to support people and I really like to to do that that's one of my kind of key strengths Um, and as part of my role like you said I've been able to do uh, the coaching qualification, which is great. Um, it helps me to be able to support my team to answer their own problems, find where their passions are, um, and be able to kind of improve the speed that they get to their goals. Perfect. Um, and it's quite interesting. A lot of people that I interview, um, women and also some men, I spoke to a man yesterday, um, most people find their way into tech. It wasn't their initial path. Um, and I love the the definition we gave at the start of that kind of spider's web into it. You know, it's not that straight direct straight direct line which everyone always thinks their career needs to be, and it's okay to kind of move around a bit. Um, it's great to hear that you've got your professional coaching qualification, um, and I know that that's something that you've been working on, and it's great to hear that you've recently qualified now. Um, from a coaching perspective um, and kind of the work that you're looking to do to support the community, do you have plans currently or kind of what, where you're going to go with that now you're you're qualified? Honestly, it's so fresh that no, I don't really know what I'm doing, but it has become very clear to me through that year-long process of getting qualified that it is something I really love and I'm so passionate about and that I want to do more with and the way that it enables people to um, speed up a process of getting to a goal that they have been struggling with for months or years um, to be able to kind of pinpoint down specific things and actionable points and have some kind of accountability within those sessions um, has sped up the process of people being able to do public speaking or getting to um, near the point of promotion and things like that and ready for their next role. So I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. I know that I want to kind of bring in the neurodiversity element um, because that's a slightly different way of coaching. I want to stick to kind of what I know to start off with, which is women in tech and tech. So there's just lots of things going around in my mind, but no kind of concrete way forward yet. Well, 
Do you know what? I think there's there's so much um, need for coaches to support people um, within the space, particularly women in, in tech. We know that that's a, a huge area from a confidence perspective, that career path kind of um, goal setting and everything else. So one thing for sure, once you are ready and you know what, what's going on and for anyone listening in, we will definitely share information about Lucy on the episode and we'll also share some stuff on Elevate Women in Tech when she's ready to go. And you are one of our cohort one mentors as well. So thank you very much. Someone's going to be a lucky um, deserving winner of your um, your mentor coaching skills on that program. So really excited to, to have you involved in that as well. Um, a topic I know that is important to you and obviously what the episode is about is how the workplace can truly support neurodiverse individuals to thrive in tech. So it would be great before we dive into kind of the whole topic if you could provide a bit of context for our audience who might not be aware as to what does neurodiversity to me yeah so i'm no doctor but i can tell you my perspective on it so neurodiversity is a word that kind of explains the unique way that people's brain works it's uh, an umbrella term um, and covers lots of different like varieties of um neurodiversity so within that there's autism adhd dyslexia and some people include conditions such as tourette's and stammers some people like to keep them separate um, there's also a big question mark over is neurodiversity included in disabilities or is it separate so there's still lots of things um being kind of discussed and that's great that people are talking about it um and everyone's brains um develop in similar ways and obviously no two brains function alike but being neurodivergent means that your brain works slightly different to the average person. And it's when those differences become a problem in everyday life. Um, so often people will say, I've got a trait of that. Um, and everyone is slightly forgetful sometimes, but it's when it's really impacting your life every day and you can't find your car keys every day and you're always late because of it. That's when it becomes more of a, a problem to people's life. Um, and that's when it can be classed as neurodivergent. Um, another word to describe is neurotypical, which describes an individual with a typical neurological development or function. Um, so it's generally the world is set up to suit neurotypical people and it's easier for them to work in everyday life, to survive in everyday life, um, other conditions aside, obviously. And I think, you know, thank you for your um, definition and your kind of explanation. Um, you know, it definitely helps me to understand this a lot more and hopefully for anyone listening in it will give a bit more of an idea as to kind of what we're going to talk about in terms of the the, the topic um on the whole today and I think one of the things you mentioned there was the fact that people are talking about the topic more and I think the more we talk about any kind of areas where people are at a disadvantage or they're part of a marginalized group um, it raises that profile and it helps that community of people to, to thrive um, and achieve, which is what ultimately is what what, what we want to get, um, which is where we want to get to. Um, if we was to look at neuroinclusion then, because um, we talk a lot about inclusive workplaces, so why do you think um, neuroinclusion is key for companies to be aware of um, to ensure that their neurodiverse individuals really do thrive in the workplace? Yeah, I think it's really important that it is considered potentially even before you're aware of somebody with a, a neurodiversity joining the company or within the company, um, because then you've got the opportunity to be able to be on the forefront of something and be able to start considering it before they come in. Um, I think it's really important that you're having those considerations and trade. It has been seen as a stigma in the past. It's been seen as, um, you know, ADHD is hyperactive. You're running around. You've got lots of energy, um, which isn't necessarily the case. It could be hyperactive in the mind. Um, so if you're trying to hide yourself and make yourself kind of fit in, you're taking up so much of your energy to try and do that. You can't be as productive um, as you might want to be or you could be if you could set yourself free and be able to just act how you want to act without trying to fit in. So it's really important that you're 
able to be yourself at work. Um, I've spent many times sat in a meeting thinking, oh, I'm fitting in. I'm, I'm looking at people in the eye. I'm like, got my hands still. I'm doing really well. And then I'm not even paying attention to what's going on because I'm celebrating the fact that I look like everyone else in the room. Um, so, and then I've got no idea what's going on. And someone asked me if I'm meant to do something. I'm like, oh no, um, I completely phased out. So it's about kind of being able to accept people and meet people where they're at as well. So often neurodiverse people can come up with some really abstract ideas, some really creative ideas, um, and also sometimes need clear processes as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to doing this as a business and there's simple things that can be done to start that process and they're never going to be 100% for every person that walks in the door but I think you could say that about neurotypical people as well as neurodivergent people. Yeah couldn't agree more and I think that piece that you said it's it's like when we talk about women in tech and we talk about inclusion for women in the tech workplace it needs to happen before the woman gets there and it's exactly the same for um, neurodiverse candidates or potential people joining that the industry or any workplace it should be something that's thought about that it's conscious so then those individuals feel like they're welcome and they can be their true selves like you said like your example there of being in that meeting yes you're you're killing it in terms of you're thinking that you fit in with everyone that's sitting around the table and then like you said the question comes and you're just like oh no I actually need to do my job so we don't want to stifle those individuals we don't want to stifle that productivity it's you know welcoming people for truly who they are which um which I couldn't agree with you more um I'd love to discuss your experience because you mentioned about um ADHD and I know you're waiting your initial diagnosis which I know can take a very long time um but how um if at all um has ADHD impacted your daily life um and kind of your your kind of work life, I suppose, would be a great one to understand. Yeah, so I think, well, obviously, like I mentioned in meetings, um, that can be fun in the past. But so I spend a lot of my time fidgeting. So I've got a fidget toy here now. I um, tried to be quiet one so I didn't get it on the recording. Um, but I spend time fidgeting or doodling. Um, and again, that can often be perceived as I'm not paying attention when actually Um, it really helps me to bring my attention into something. Um, So I've had interviews in the past where I've come in with pen and paper so that I can doodle during the interview. And I've had to be quite honest about that. But at the same time, I need a company to accept me for who I am. So if I'm not me during the interview process, um, they're probably not going to like me during my career. So trying to be my authentic self through the whole kind of process um, is something that's important to me. I'm getting distracted. I am a whirlwind like in the kitchen. Um, so I have to have kind of like multiple alarms to not forget that I've put something in the microwave or um, what time I need to put stuff in. And I'm like writing down if I've got a roast, what time I need to put the chicken in, what time I need to put the uh, potatoes in. Otherwise, I will completely forget what's going on. And it's similar in work life. I have to kind of put schedules, meetings in with myself in my diary so that I don't forget to do that action that I said I was going to do and I've got it on a to-do list on a piece of paper and I've got it on a to-do list on my screen so kind of multiple places to keep reminding me to do stuff Um, at the same time if I'm interested in something I will like really hyper fixate um, and I'll spend a lot of time doing it and I'll do it to a kind of fully focused forget about the world, forget to drink, forget to eat, um, which is where the alarms and stuff come in. Um, So yeah, time blindness can be a problem. Um, And again, for me, I have kind of gone the other way. So you can often get time blindness where people are late all the time. I'm super aware that I am time blind. So I have alarms to make sure that I'm early. And if I'm planning to go somewhere, I will over egg how much time it's going to take me to get somewhere so train's going to take an hour I might get delayed so I'll do an hour and 20 minutes and I've got 10 minutes to walk to the station or I might as well add an extra 10 minutes and by the time you've added it all together I'm probably like 30 minutes early to something that I really didn't need to be but I'm so panicked about being late it's kind of the opposite end of it um, whereas you'll get other people that are kind of always late all the time so there's a real kind of diversity 
of um, the way it can impact lives, I get really overwhelmed. Overwhelm is a big thing and it drains my battery like super quick. Uh, so if I'm in the office or in a busy environment, lights, noise, touch, um, having to kind of deal with lots of different people, reading body language, that can become quite an overwhelming experience. So um, just kind of being conscious of how that impacts me. Um, yeah, and I, I think because of the way I've always tried to mimic people in the past, trying to do it less so now, I am quite a chameleon, which I think is how I've been able to change jobs and stuff. So I can blend into lots of different groups. When I was in school, I had lots of different friendship groups that I kind of ducked in and out of. Um, and if you think about like the kind of preppy girls to the um, goths as it was back then, um, I kind of was able to somehow manage to get into a bit of all of them. Um, and I think that's just from being able to kind of copy people's body language. But then when it comes into the workplace, that's been really helpful because if I'm talking to people more senior, I've got a really good way of being able to kind of see the language they're using, mimic it and play that back. And also if I'm talking to my direct reports, like what technical language are they using? I'll find out more about that and, and mimic that kind of information back and that's me being interested that's just not me trying to copy what they're doing and fit in it's a way of me showing my interest as well so yeah there's like swings and roundabouts as to positives and challenges um but overall I think it's made me the person I am so I'm super happy about that yeah I was gonna say there's some huge positives there and um and I'm sure like you said that overwhelming feeling must be exhausting at times as well where it's just like oh like how do I move on to the next task or whatever it is that I need to do next because I've just it's just drained me. Um, obviously, when we talk about kind of um, individuals that have neuro, neurodivergent um, challenges, I don't know if that's the, the, the right phrase to use, but um, there's obviously some myths that can be surrounded around different diagnoses um, that, that people have. And Obviously, for you having um, ADHD, what are the myths that you would like to dispel around ADHD from your lived experience? Yeah, I think probably the biggest one is the the hyperactivity. So um, they're starting to look at like the different ways that ADHD presents. Um, and obviously, more women are now getting diagnosed, which is great. And it was often seen before that the hyperactivity was physical. You're running around. Um, and that isn't always true. And people can look at you and go, well, you're not running around in circles. You can't have ADHD. But for me, it's a constant um, million things going through my mind. It's the having multiple tabs open. It's the um, having every drawer open in my kitchen and walking into them all the time because I've kind of forgot to close them or I forgot what I was doing. Um, so it's not just physical hyperactivity it's hyperactivity in the mind um which which can be a massive misconception i think and the the actual words for adhd don't necessarily match the the diagnosis now so um but i don't think we're going to get away from that and i think the other thing is adhd is is just for for children for kids um it's being diagnosed a lot more in adults um, and it's no longer kind of the naughty child diagnosis um, as it was previously considered. And I think COVID, as much as that's had a, a massive impact on the world, for this has probably had a, a change in people's perspectives because people were sat at home with potentially only themselves and their family and a lot of time on their hands and starting to realise that the things that they were potentially running around doing all the time to cover up some of this stuff um, they couldn't do anymore and uh, scrolling through social media and starting to see things and then obviously it takes you down that rabbit hole more adults are getting diagnosed since kind of COVID and since it's being talked about and then I guess that brings to the next point of ADHD is, is I over diagnosed so there has been an increase in diagnosis um, but that is because of a number of factors um, and there are more people talking about it and there is more research going into it and more understanding 
of different types of ADHD and acceptance of it. So people are going to be more willing to come forwards. Um, yeah, so I think they're probably the big ones for me that are definitely getting there and people are understanding and I'm sure more myths will come through soon but yeah yeah I think that that myth of ADHD is just the naughty child um it's definitely one that if you asked me that that's kind of the one of the first kind of conceptions that would come into my kind of thought process but you're right I think the fact that we are talking about this more I think the the diagnosis of that and actually, you know, I know a number of people that have been late diagnosed and actually if you look back earlier in their lives, they're now understanding why they face certain challenges that they did along the way because of the diagnosis that they're they're starting to get now. And it, it's helping put um put a lot of kind of context on things. And I think it's that that saying of don't judge a book, I think is such a, a key um from an ADHD perspective. What coping strategies or tools have you found? You spoke about a couple of them already um, that has helped you manage your ADHD symptoms. Um, I think the biggest one is to like not compare myself to other people. I think the thing that I've done across the years is seen that someone has one to-do list and they're super organized and they manage everything and I need to be that way. And um, now starting to kind of unpick that and realize, like I said before, I need multiple platforms to, to hold my to-do list. Sometimes I will do it on one place, then I'll get bored of it. And um, and I'll, I, I will just, without really realizing it, I've gone from having it online to having it on a piece of paper with sticky notes everywhere. And I'm like, okay, fine, my brain switched this week. We're doing it this way. And instead of me punishing myself, being like, oh, why can't I use that one thing that I just said I was going to do? It's like, fine, like, scratch that. We'll come back to that another time. And we'll use these sticky notes that we've got hanging around everywhere this week. And we'll see what happens next week. And if that changes tomorrow, that's completely fine. So I think um, it's understanding how you kind of work and not punishing yourself for that is, is a really big thing to start understanding. Um, things that are boring are really hard to do so like gamification is a massive thing Um, so going for a walk is good for my mental health but it is not the most fun thing all of the time so sometimes I'll go out for a walk and I'm pretending I'm a giant and I am climbing over mountains and jumping over big puddles and um, I'm just literally stepping over a puddle. I'm jumping over a lake in my mind. So it's that kind of gamification. And somebody, uh, a great one that I saw online the other week was um, tidying your kitchen. Uh, I keep going back to cooking, but it's it's mundane. So tidying your kitchen and pretending you're a spy and you can't leave any evidence whatsoever of your existence. And I thought, that's great. I love that. Like, I, I'm a spy every evening if I can't clean my kitchen. Kitchen spot, um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> and then um, time boxing is also really important, as I said before. So forgetting to do something that you might have mentioned, so putting that in your diary. Um, I recently kind of restructured all my diary to consider when I'm most um, productive for doing focus work and when I'm most productive for having my one-to-ones with people. Um so one-to-ones in the afternoon and focus work in the morning and then um, trying to time box those mornings so putting in an hour and a half to do x being conscious that I know it will take me 20 minutes to get into a subject that's fine Um, but making sure I've got a reasonable amount of time to, to do that thing and then body doubling one that I haven't really been able to do but I know works quite well with other people um so for that it's around having somebody with you and it's not even from an accountability factor it could just be literally someone else sat in your living room whilst you're tidying up and work-wise being sat on a call with someone else not talking not doing anything but you're on a call they're on a call and you're both working and for some reason makes you or can make you be able to focus a bit better it's that kind of subconscious accountability and you can discuss what you're doing at the end um, and I think a lot of developers do that naturally with kind of paired programming and stuff like that so um, one to keep trying out but we'll see and then um, 
as I mentioned before, hyper-focus. So um, hyper-focus survival is a, a big thing. So if you've gone down that rabbit hole, I try to make sure each morning, again, not always fully good at it, but that I've got a snack on my desk and that I've got a drink of water on my desk. Because if I've gone down that rabbit hole, if I don't see those things directly in front of me, I'm going to forget to drink and I'm going to forget to have lunch and I'm going to forget to walk away from my desk. So again, seeing them doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to drink it, but at least I've tried to put something in place to help myself. And when I kind of come out of that, I'm going to drink the whole glass of water and need probably a few others, but it's trying to kind of protect myself um, in the first instance. Lots of tips and tricks that anyone listening in they might be able to take on board or maybe if you're working with someone who um, has ADHD you might see some of these traits and then might be able to understand more be more kind of that inclusive that inclusion piece um, is definitely something that that awareness definitely um, would help shifting gears just slightly what advice would you give to somebody who is recently been diagnosed with ADHD as to how it might be able to to support them in the workplace just in life in general yeah so obviously I I haven't been diagnosed I'm still on that waiting list and I think there's potentially um a misunderstanding especially within kind of the media and stuff is that people get diagnosed super quickly you'll see like documentaries online where a celebrity is like oh I think I've got ADHD and then they get a diagnosis within six weeks and then they go through the understanding period and that's not the reality that I have seen in any way so a lot of it is um, as you're kind of going through that diagnosis waiting often people are going through and looking and um, trying to understand what they're kind of talking about so I just be very conscious of where you're getting information from Mm -hmm. and um to start considering like where that's from is it a reasonable reputable source um and starting to understand the things that you can celebrate so in my mind if i've left i've gone to take the bin out forget to put the bin bag back in um and probably have left about six things in my wake as well i'm come back to that situation and i celebrate it and i'm like okay yeah i left the bin in the middle of the room that's my ADHD. Great. Like I'm, I'm pleased that this is me and this is how I, how I show up and I'm not like, Oh, beating myself up for that anymore. So I think it's to, to kind of really celebrate who you are. And there is a bit of a grieving process as you go through diagnosis of, I am not that person that I thought it was going to be. And I'm not the way that I thought things were going to show up. And I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Um, so there's definitely kind of a, a grieving process and lots of like wow moments as you realize, okay, that's the reason I do this. This is why I can't kind of function in this one, two, three, four process. I'm like one, four, two, maybe three will turn up at some point. Um, you know, you've kind of got to really come to terms with that and that can be hard so it's finding your community talking to people um um trying to find people that are going through similar processes who've been through that and as you kind of start to realize that these things like i said before are adhd or anything else you realize how much you've kind of masked which is Uh, putting a mask on hiding yourself from others um, trying to fit in and those kind of things start to really break down Um, so now like I wiggle more I stand up more in meetings I fidget and all of those things I would have hidden before and it kind of starts to feel like I'm becoming more ADHD when actually I'm just becoming my true self so there's kind of a piece around that acceptance again and helping others to to understand Um, but you don't have to tell anyone if you don't want to Um, there's a lot of great people doing advocacy and sharing stuff and you could potentially you know drop some of these learning things into team meetings or whatever it might be with other kind of diversity things so you're not potentially like 
outing yourself if you don't want to, um, having a bit more of a full DEI lens and putting it in there so that people can learn about all sorts of different things um, without having to kind of put yourself out there if that doesn't feel safe or secure. Um, but definitely it's the, the be kind to yourself. It's not an easy process to go through. For me, it's 30 odd years of learning and the way that my processes that I internally thought of how things work, trying to unpick them. So just trying to be kind of kind to yourself and try to start that acceptance process. It's not easy, but you've 30 years to build what you've got to could take you 30 years to unpick it unfortunately yeah like you said it's that being kind it's a journey isn't it you know like you've been on a a journey of 30 years and now you're probably gonna be going on even more of a journey I think like with everything um it's that finding those people that can support you that can that community that that really makes you feel good about yourself because it, it it is you, isn't it? And I think it's being comfortable with who you are and not feeling like you have to be be something different. So hopefully that's um, some advice there and some some tips that might help people. And I'm sure, you know, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, you would be open to connections on LinkedIn and open yeah, to conversations definitely. and things like that. Um, from your experience then as um, an employee um, and a tech leader, what and we, if we think about things from a workplace perspective, how can workplaces be more supportive of employees with um, neurodiverse needs? And what changes would you really like to see if you could kind of wave a magic wand and kind of have it implemented everywhere? If I could wave a magic wand, I would have uh, all sorts of kind of like external metrics that people could see as to my energy levels and all sorts of things. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But um, I think like companies need to be definitely more proactive than reactive. So um, if you think about kind of like physical disabilities and um, it's no direct comparison, but often places will have a ramp or at least a ramp available um, if you needed to get in with a wheelchair or a pushchair or something like that. Um, And companies need to think in the same way for um, neurodiversity as well. So having policies um, in place or consideration within your policies for how these things might work for neurodiverse people is really something to consider. Um, There's kind of people get burnt out and tired and drained a lot quicker especially if they are masking so they might need additional sick um, similar to if you had kind of a physical disability and were had a stomach complaint and you needed to kind of be off a fair amount of time so those kind of things need to be kind of considered and the other thing is that it's not up to neurodivergent people to train leaders um, about the disabilities or about their neurodiversity companies need to put that training into place and encourage if not mandate don't really like the word but people to do it because what is the important part is is people's stories so people want to be sharing their personal experience how that affects them at work without having to spend six weeks before that of one-to-ones explaining what is ADHD how does it work yes it is real like I'm not just being lazy this week. I'm really tired. Um, So I think it's that piece about training. And within tech, I think we're we're really fortunate that um, we have, most places have a schedule that is flexible. Different sectors may not have that flexibility. So it's the real consideration. And again, going back to the policy part of, what environments and what flexibility will work for neurodivergent people Um, and having systems in place in the background, having communities in place to help people. So you might be really struggling one day. Can I pop a message in a chat and say, look, can someone just jump on a call with me to do some body doubling without having to explain what body doubling is? And that's there. And I think a big thing as well is having clear priorities within teams so that you understand what you're doing, why you're showing up and how you can really support that. I think the big thing to say is though that with many things, having these things in place don't just benefit neurodiverse people, they benefit neurotypical people as well. So having agendas on meetings, 
really helps neurodiverse people but it also really helps neurotypical people because you need to everyone needs to know whether they need to show up to that meeting whether they're going to add value whether that clash which one's the most important and if i've just got two random names for calls i don't know which one's the most important and i probably imagine a neurotypical person wouldn't either so there are things that don't just help neurodiverse people they make the whole work environment better for everyone so I think it's really important to be proactive because it helps everyone. Yeah, love that. There's really great tips in there for employers, hiring managers, exec leadership teams, HR that are listening in, what they can be doing just to kind of key takeouts and really kind of small changes that people can make to make the workplace better for neurodivergent people, but also better for the more efficient workplaces, like you mentioned there, agendas on invites such a basic thing but how many invites do we receive I know back when I was in the corporate world um and you'd get invites to things and you'd be like what are we actually doing and then like an hour before you go in you might get a bit of an agenda that comes in or you turn up to the meeting and the agenda comes up and it's like why am I here like why why do I need to be here for this so um so yeah no I can I completely agree there on on some of the things that you've mentioned um, if we were to look at employers um, from a hiring perspective, because obviously you mentioned some of the challenges earlier in the episode. If you're an employer, if you're a company that haven't been proactive and you haven't got any kind of um, considerations in place, and then you're looking to hire candidates in and you might have a case neurodivergent, what strategies or initiatives have you found useful for First of all, I suppose, attracting neurodiverse candidates and then, um, you know, that whole kind of walkthrough from job advert through to the interview process itself to make it a more effective, more inclusive environment for, for those individuals coming in. Yeah, I think you have to have those basics, like I said, within the company beforehand and being forthcoming with them. So um, showing your policies externally um, are are really helpful when considering which company you might want to apply for. Um, I think I, I don't have all the answers. I think obviously there is definitely a stigma in the past around putting that you will have ADHD or autism or dyslexia on an application um, or on asking for a reasonable adjustment. But what I would say is if you want to work better, you kind of have to bring that forwards and really check for yourself whether that company is um, accepting of that because otherwise you're going to put yourself in a situation where you'll end up burnt out because you're trying to mask and hide and um, and all these things so if you are neurodivergent and you feel comfortable to I would encourage you to do it so that you can kind of interview them as well on, on what they're doing um, from a company perspective yeah I think considering you're biased at the point of the hiring process so when you're writing a job description um you know considering and there are so many things out there as to technologies that can help us with this of considering you're biased putting that out is it a job that is speaking to neurotypical people and not really considering any kind of flexibility in that which points are your key points that you can't change from um, from that kind of neurodiversity lens and which points are you are you more flexible on um, I think being forthcoming of the policies that like I said um, sharing those with the the outside world and, and starting to if you can if you do have neurodivergent people in your company or at least um, a different diverse panel on an interview um, board because if I come into a company and see that you've got a diverse panel of people, I can see that you're starting to accept a change. There aren't many companies that are 100% there. Um, I'm not sure if anyone is right now. So having the start of something is probably like enough. Um, and being able to reach out to people before they've got the interview and ask them what they need. So um, if it comes to extra time, um, sharing the questions before the interview like from my perspective an interview is not there as a memory test so encouraging people to bring their notes to the interview and things like that so and I really struggle to keep on track so within this 
today you've shared the questions beforehand so I can keep referring back to them in my mind so I know that I'm on track and people need to do that as part of that interview process as well if I can't see the questions the likelihood is I've gone off over there and you need me over here um, so kind of really sharing what that interview is what's the format of that interview beforehand and having a bit of that flexibility within scheduling like if the person needs to take a break if if you're becoming overly stressed um those kind of points of consideration is that shouldn't be seen as a negative that that person couldn't withstand an hour and a half of being questioned it's just okay it's getting a bit too much for you right now do you want to just take five minutes that's perfectly fine we're cool with that if it was a workshop you wouldn't mind if someone walked out for five minutes to grab a cup of tea like treating an interview in the same way um and it's often kind of seen as there's like these little things that we need to check that are there during an interview so face to face like are they looking at the camera are they looking at me in the face are they kind of looking around the room and within the UK especially it's a really big thing that people keep eye contact they shake your hand if it's a face-to-face interview and those things I just I am so uncomfortable it gives me such an ick as to trying to do those things and I don't understand where that structures come from and what benefit that gives to the other person so it's kind of considering are we doing this because we're told we have to do it are we doing this because it's a social norm what benefit does it give me if you look me in the eye or if you're slightly looking away a little bit like what difference does that really make to the process um sometimes I will do a whole kind of chat and I'll be looking in a different direction because it's just helping me to retain or recall the information. Um, So I think like we just have to be really considerate of why we're doing something in other cultures, too much eye contact is seen as a big sign of disrespect. So like really considering why we're doing it, what we're doing. And I think being like really kind of forthcoming in that process of what are the expectations, really simple stuff of how long is the interview gonna take? uh, How many steps are there in the interview process? Is there a dress code? Are we expecting to have your camera on? Is it expected to be face-to-face? Like being overly um, forthcoming with all of the information. So there is like less points of ambiguity that would then cause stress um, if you are overthinking something, which is, again, often a problem if you have an ADHD brain that thinks about everything altogether at a million miles an hour. And I think that there's so many things in there that, that you've given such such great tips and advice on. It's interesting, um, obviously, kind of companies and um, employers and hirers are being more aware. And only this week I saw, um, I can't remember, it was on LinkedIn, but it was someone who was interview, interviewing for a leadership role. And one of the things he shared was the fact that exactly what you said, the interview isn't there to catch somebody out and how he shared all of the questions he was going to ask prior to the, the interview with all of his candidates so they could be prepared and come. And actually, be it if you're a neurodivergent candidate or you're a neurotypical, having that information, I know what I'm like when I go for an interview, I get really nervous. So actually, I start to forget, I ramble, I go off on tangents and don't actually answer the question that I'm meant to answer. Whereas if I can go into something knowing the question, a few bullet points, it just helps you keep on track to keep things going because it isn't a challenge. It's not something where, oh, God, you know, Kelly doesn't remember this because actually if he was in the workplace, you could probably Google it. You could bring something up. You could ask someone who's sitting next to you. It's treating people like humans. We're not robots and we're not supposed to know everything all of the time. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I really like that. And uh, there's some really great tips there for people that are hiring that could just have way more effective hiring practices just by doing a few small tweaks. Um, uh, I was going to say, also as like a candidate as well, like so from a candidate perspective, I have, and I've unfortunately lost it because that is the way my brain works. Um, I had a, uh, a notebook with um, lots of different sections as to um, different things that would come up within an interview. And I would make notes of them throughout my career so that if I ever got into a situation where I needed to go for an interview 
I can't remember what I did last week, let alone six years ago. And I know it might not be fully relevant, but if you're changing careers, something from six years ago might be really relevant for a, a job you're going for now. So I, I tend to, I've, I've kept that notebook so that each time I go through an interview process, I can remember everything I did. And I'm like, oh, wow, I really did that. Oh, yeah, that's great. I forgot about that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of probably Keeping a tab of everything. I think that's a really... Keep- yeah, really great tips. We spoke about the hiring practice and how we can be more inclusive around that, that side of the process. So that's great. We can hire better. We can bring people in and, and attract more um, neurodiverse candidates from improving our hiring practice. But then it's a bit like women in tech. Like We do all this effort to bring women in at the recruitment stage. And then it's like, right, well, what's next? Well, you've got them in your workplace. It needs to be a continuation. So once we've hired someone who may be neurodivergent, what onboarding practices um, from your kind of experience um, could enable neurodiverse individuals to thrive and really feel welcomed when they're joining an organisation? Yeah, I think having a, a plan for your first day before you start because you can't see your diary and often I would check the day before what's going on tomorrow. So having that plan before um, people start so they can roughly see what's going to go on within their first day I think is really important and if you can like first week or so um, so that you get to see that a plan of the, the building if you're having to go into the office how facilities work a lot of companies have gone away from a kettle and to these app things that are really hard to work out which button you're meant to press and then I get stressed I can't have a cup of tea and um so yeah just kind of simple things like that of how does your printers work how does your hot tap work if I don't need it I don't need it and if I do great it's there and I'm not having to kind of overly stress about these things I'm really setting expectations with people so often you'll come in and it's like sometimes you might get a 30 day plan sometimes you might not like does your manager have any goals and expectations for you are you meant to hit the ground running on this project or is it a slow get to know the team what's going on Um, and those kind of regular check-ins with manager or whoever it might want to might be if you've got other people within the company with those needs, like setting up a community, having buddies, when you start having um, those, again, the policies in place so that you can like share them with people. And I think like if you can, um, having a conversation with the manager and um, HR, if you've got a HR before somebody starts again proactive not reactive like what do you need to make yourself comfortable within this company when you start like do you need to work from home four days a week do you need to come into the office do you need this like having those really open and honest conversations before you start is going to make that person feel like yeah this is a place I want to be at they're really supporting me they're meeting me where I need them to be but also from a kind of neurodiversity perspective, sometimes I don't know what I need, which is really hard. So I don't know the answer to that one, but hopefully someone in HR might as to like, where do you go to get the information? If you're not a specialist in something, where do you go to find that information to offer suggestions as um, someone in this area? Because, you know, I, I can tell you what some of my problems are, but I can't necessarily tell you how I can answer that or what you have available. Um, so it's just kind of starting that really open and honest conversation of I struggle with time management. Have you got anything that helps within your company? I, you know, dyslexia, I read slow or I use read aloud. Do you have those functionalities? What else can you offer? So it's really kind of starting pre them walking in the door like you've offered them the role let's start having a conversation about what we can do to really support you yeah and really understanding that person coming in and again you know really good onboarding practices this should be a norm anyway um and you know some organizations are fantastic at it some organizations that you think would be fantastic at it given the size and who they are you're just like, wow, is that really how it happens here? Um, so, yeah, the, there's so many in-betweens. And I think if everyone could be more um, proactive, like you said, and less reactive, I think it's a better onboarding experience um, for all. Um, we spoke about hiring. We spoke about onboarding. Next really important thing is retaining people. So, you know, you could do all of these great things. You've onboarded them. They've had a great one-week plan and then kind of things just stop. So, 
If we were looking from a retention perspective, we know that retaining staff, hiring is an expensive process. Um, losing members of staff is even a more expensive um, process for organisations. So uh, what advice do you have for managers in supporting and retaining neurodiverse team members? For me, it's about really listening to people. So when you're listening not listening with your own assumptions and biases like really taking in the information from what they're saying I'm struggling with this and not just going well have you tried x app like really listening to what their problems are and then potentially taking them away um finding the best person to answer those questions um and it's not putting it all back on the neurodiverse person to come up with the answers as well like it's tiring being me <laughs> so I, I can't come up with everything for you like there's got to be a bit of uh, got to be a bit of give and take in that situation so um, making sure that you're really listening to the person what they're talking about where their where their strengths are as well is really important so if my strength is you know empathy dealing with people being able to kind of read them and help and support them like help me to go towards a role that is to my strength admittedly I do find people really tiring so it's catchy too but I enjoy it um and again it's the including people in policies so if you've got neurodiverse people and they're and they want to um including them in the amending of policies or getting special policies put into place um or getting specialists in to, to help you with those things so um, a great analogy that I heard at a talk a while ago was you, you wouldn't ask someone who doesn't know how to drive to teach you how to drive the same way don't make assumptions of my needs without asking me what my needs are and yes we could have a variety of different needs across five different neurodivergent people but generally there's again some umbrellas that we can kind of put things into and start to help and support um encouraging people to share their stories if they feel comfortable with it putting that kind of learning and development of leaders in place so training um so that people can then just share their stories uh regular check-ins is is super important so it could be a, a check-in one week about work-wise and then a check-in the next week about how things are going for you personally how anything we can do to help from a neurodiversity perspective and once you've got that in place maybe they drop off maybe they don't but at least you've set that boundary of or set that kind of expectation sorry of we can have these conversations that's that's fine um and i think for me i couldn't tell whether it's autism adhd or anything else it's about really setting those expectations so ambiguity is hard so if you tell me end of day get something done by end of day one i'll hold you to it i i think you expect it by end of day i will email it to you at five o'clock and i kind of expect some kind of response as well because i am that's the way my kind of brain works but often people say end of day and it's kind of said in a really yeah some point around end of day i take that as gospel you take that as a bit of yeah in the next three days and I am stressing because my expectation is different to yours. So if you're setting an expectation with someone, making sure it's not ambiguous, let's pop in a chat. It's really hard. Like, what are you trying to get at here? Like, what are we talking about? Like, let's talk about this project. If you've got five minutes, that's a different conversation. That stops me stressing. I can find time in my diary for that. So yeah, those kind of things I think are kind of really important and considering language as well is is a really important thing when you're supporting someone. So what's the best way to support them? Do they just need to vent? Do they want to be helped? Do they want to be heard? Do they want to be hugged? Um, probably not so much from your managers, but like where do you need me to be in these conversations? So, and again, I go back to communities as well. That's super important you need to find your people you need to find your tribe to really help and support you so that and everything I've said above which is a big ask and a long list but we'll get there in the end definitely but I think you know the more we talk the more we raise these points the more we start to change and I think you know from listening to some of the things that you mentioned there um all we're asking for is leaders to be leaders um, and I think it's you know, it's a throwback to managers, to leaders to kind of really look at themselves as well and think about right, how are you developing yourself to support your 
employees and, and your workers. So um, again, some really great tips and some really great um, bits and pieces that that you've um, that you've shared with us there. Um, we're coming towards the end now. So in terms of kind of wrapping up our conversation today. Um, what would you most want managers and leaders to understand about creating an inclusive cu- culture for neurodiverse um, individuals? Yeah, I think like what you said there, leaders is is really important. So it's not just for managers. Everyone, in my opinion, is a leader in a company, depending on if you're leading a project, if you're leading people. So everybody really needs to have like this understanding, this basic knowledge. And I think, again, being proactive, not reactive, really think about what you're doing and making sure that you're putting those things in place. Um, Hiring a diverse, hiring diverse people. So we don't want cookie cutters in a company. You probably won't get anywhere. you want to have a bit of give and take. You want to have a bit of um, kind of cross collaboration, different ideas coming up, and it creates some really amazing things. There's obviously things that we've seen in the past where you've got everybody in your team is right-handed, and then nothing is developed for left-handed people. Yeah. We, we want a diverse amount of people so that we can kind of um, come up with different things, new things, amazing things. And I think being really cautious of stereotypes. So don't just take things at face value. Don't just take things at what you've been taught at school or what's kind of come up in your past. Educate yourself um, is is a really important thing. And just get, I say just, it's not that simple, but get the basics in place. So you're treating everyone where they need to be met. So neurodiverse, neurotypical, anything is you know you need to treat the person where they need to be met so being flexible listening to their stories advocate for them you know listen really listen yeah my kind of key things to do as leader we're at the end now um so finally thank you so much for for coming on i've learned loads today um there's definitely things that have piqued my interest and i know there's stuff that i'm going to go away and and research and look into um more so thank you so much lucy for sharing insights and kind of your lived experience as well because obviously this is something that you have lived with for 30 years and you're continuing to to work through and and kind of help and obviously you're going to be coaching others um in the not too distant future as well um my final question, always throw a final question out there to the people that I have on. What advice do you have for women in tech who also identify as neurodiverse? Um, so I'm here with you. So if you want to reach out, if you need to have a chat, like, yeah, reach out on LinkedIn. And I'm always happy to kind of chat about these things. Um, embrace your individuality. Um, celebrate it because we are so different in every single different way and that that doesn't just mean like internally it's externally it's it's everything so if you've kind of done something that is a little bit different to what you're expecting celebrate it give yourself a little bit of an internal whoop whoop um you know you forgot to close the kitchen cupboards yeah that's me I'm, I'm, I'm all right with that I'm good with that it's no big problem we'll close it again and we'll move on and instead of beating yourself up about it um each of these things make you you um don't be afraid to ask for support because those stigmas are breaking down and you need to be in an environment that works for you and that can be hard um so you know sometimes taking a temperature check of who is the best person to go to to ask for this support might not be your manager it might not be your colleague do you need to you know go a few steps sideways to find the right person to support you through this process but always ask for the support that you need and recognize your strengths because if we learn to accept and love our strengths and what we love doing you'll find that you can kind of mold a career that works around those strengths as well if you're fighting against it you're just kind of making yourself harder you're running up uphill and you need to be really accepting those things and it's not an easy process it's hard it's sometimes draining in itself to go through that process but if you really start to understand your values what you enjoy doing for anyone really and starting to accept those and moving towards those changes and the small things that you could do at work like getting involved in a project that's slightly outside your remit or starting to advocate for these things in team meetings 
and starting to kind of get rid of that old baggage. Um, they're things that you can really like then build up on and go towards what you really want to do. We spend so much time working, so we need to be in the right place, doing the right thing and making sure that we're enjoying it however many hours a week that we have to do it for. So, yeah, I think if any of this has kind of resonated and you want to chat, then, yeah, like I said, please reach out on LinkedIn because I'm happy to talk about this stuff all day and every day because it's, it's my passion. Awesome. Well, Lucy, really appreciate you coming on today. Like I said, sharing those experiences. I'm sure you're going to get quite a few reach outs from um, from people that are going to listen into the show. And um, for any listeners, um, I'll share all Lucy's details in the show notes. Um, you can connect with her, obviously, on, on LinkedIn and we can go from there. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking. No worries. And to all our listeners, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Elevate, Elevate Women in Tech. Don't forget to subscribe for more insightful conversations with trailblazers in the tech industry. Um, And don't forget to also join our LinkedIn and Slack community channels as well. Until next time, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.